PBSI in the world. I'm John Batchelor with Professor Sean McMeekin. His new book is Stalin's War, an assembly of facts and quotes and observations and narrative that add up to a surprising version of what happened between 1939 and 1948 and the beginning of the Cold War. We go to the event that is celebrated as the beginning of the collapse of Germany. However, it was it started as an as a as a massacre along the Russian frontier with Germany. Stalin, having gobbled up all the buffer states, I learned from the professor, has now a border with Germany of thousands of miles. He's made himself vulnerable. In his greed for territory without fighting, he's created the conditions that on June 22nd, 1941, lead to Operation Barbarossa. The Germans jumping the border and rolling, I think, Army Group Center or something significant, rolled 40 miles in the first day. The story told at the time was that Stalin was shocked, even to the ha point of having a nervous breakdown. No one heard from him until he addressed the nation in July via radio, which at that point was available for very few people. But in any event, that's the story. The facts mitigate that story. Professor, where was Stalin June 22nd, June 21st, June 22nd, and all the way to his July address? Oh, well, he, he was mostly in the Kremlin meeting with all of his ordinary advisors. I mean, as it was happening in real time, there, there's no sign of any kind of serious break where Stalin has any type of a breakdown or panic. There is a dramatic scene about a week into the war once all the horrendous reports are pouring in from the frontier and there are different versions of what he says. You know, we've, there's a catastrophe. We've, we've flushed Lenin's legacy down the toilet. It's all done. Um, and there's a bit of a tantrum and he goes to his dacha. Um, but this is only for a short period. I mean, of course, he had to rest and sleep from time to time. But and the idea, for example, that there were that he disregarded all warnings about the war. Uh, now, he didn't believe every intelligence report he got, in part because he just got so many of them. Um, but he couldn't hide a military buildup of this scale. Uh, the Soviets weren't hiding their military buildup either. And that's the part most people don't know about is just how much the Soviets were shifting to the frontier. It's just that in the end, the Soviets were effectively caught a little bit in this mid-mobilization limbo. There have been all these last-minute orders to try to camouflage all the new tank parks and, and air bases, and they weren't ready. Uh, it wasn't done. It was supposed to be completed at some point in, in July. Um, so, sure, I'm sure there was a, a a moment not of panic exactly, but of, of shock a little bit that the Germans had really beaten them to the punch and gotten them before they were ready. But, right, the idea of this, this breakdown, the shock of this invasion, it, it's a story that in, in various guises has kind of um, continued on to the present day, in part because, of course, it's so convenient. It makes it seem like this was this utterly unprovoked, unexpected invasion, whereas, in fact, both sides had really been mobilizing and preparing for war for months. It's just that the Germans uh, were both a little bit faster, quicker, more efficient at it, and in the end, the Germans struck first, which, on the one hand, did, of course, tremendous damage to the Soviets because they were so exposed. They had so much equipment so close to the frontier so much of their air force was so close to the frontier. Um, but, but in the long run, just as you said, uh, uh, strategically, diplomatically, in effect, this kind of sealed Germany's defeat because by committing such an obvious and flagrant act of armed aggression, this created this kind of almost public relations miracle, as I call it, where Stalin was no longer the monster and the butcher and the devourer of small nations, but now he was a victim and his people were heroes. And so uh, the British and, and the United States are going to unleash uh, this flood of, of 
largesse, uh, lend lease and in, in, in other varieties uh, that in the end is going to help turn the tide of the war on the Eastern Front. It's October 8th, 1941. Zhukov, commanding first the Leningrad, the Stalingrad, the Petersburg Front, which called Leningrad, and now commanding the Moscow Front, telephones Stalin. The quote, nearly all routes to Moscow are now open. The city is evacuating women and children. The NKVD is, has lost control. Factories are rioting. There's looting going on in the city. The Germans are within sights of the, ta- of the towers of Moscow. Stalin chooses not to leave, emphasizing that their victims are going to fight to the end. The puzzle here is, uh, this one quote you have, Sean, if 500 German parachutists had drummed in to Moscow and taken control of the radio, the Soviet Union is done. It's astonishing. What was, at this point, the Western opinion of the war that day, uh, October 8th? What did London think? What did uh, Washington think? The two outstanding capitals that hadn't been conquered. Well, it's interesting. I think Moscow certainly could have fallen. I'm not sure if the Soviet Union would have entirely collapsed. They had begun already evacuating some of their factories and much of the government to the east. Um, but I do think Stalin's decision to stay was critical, both in in helping to stiffen morale in the city. And in the end, there was a little bit of fortune and luck that the Germans didn't really know how vulnerable the city was. Um, but how serious it was. Uh, the one thing that probably prevented the full story from getting out was that most of the journalists had already left Moscow. So I don't I don't think those journalists also understood just how serious the situation was. On the other hand, they know they had been told to leave, along with the diplomats, the entire diplomatic corps. They were all sent to Kuybyshev, or Samara, as it was later called, so that for this for this next period in the war, in fact, Moscow, a little bit like Paris, has been evacuated in various wars. The capital is, is no longer Moscow, as far as the foreign correspondents and, and, the, and the diplomats and the embassies. Uh, there certainly was this sense that uh, Russia was close to going under, which is part of what helped Roosevelt and his advisors like Hopkins really to justify their policy of all out aid to the Soviet Union, which thus far had basically been hidden from the public. Um, in fact, right up into November, uh, the U.S. ambassador at the time, Lawrence Steinhardt, I think it's on the 6th of November, one day before uh, the revolution anniversary parade that Stalin uh, famously stages to show the defiance of, of, of the Soviet people. Uh, Steinhardt warns um, his Soviet uh, counterparts and hosts that they must not leak to any Western reporters that the the U.S. has been giving all of this aid to the Soviet because it was still secret. It was being hidden from the public that the Soviets had been deemed worthy and eligible for Lend-Lease aid. Um, after November, and you know, both the decision to stay and then also Stalin's famous speech at the Revolutionary Parade, and I mean, there are parts of it that uh, harked back to Russia's glorious ancestors patriotically. There are also parts where he's talking about how if the Germans want to have a war of extermination, they'll have it. Uh, the very next day, in fact, in fact, pretty much the same day, depending on the time zone, Roosevelt finally finally announces openly to the public that he has deemed the Soviets worthy of Lend-Lease aid. And so the very fact that things were rather desperate, and, and I, they might not have known all the details, but I think this was perceived in London and Washington helped to justify that policy. So they, they really do unleash uh, the floodgates of aid, which they'd already been doing surreptitiously. Now they're going to do it quite openly. Yes, we need to talk about the aid, Lend-Lease, first, second, and third protocol. But a date here, it comes to uh, late 1941, uh, October, November, and there's a stand made at Moscow, and uh, the Germans, uh, Sean pictures them as two 
uh, two punched out fighters swinging wildly to each other where they can barely see. That's how exhausted they are in December. But there's something else that's about to happen, was that the, the U.S. is about to be attacked by Japan. And we want to include that here before we explore Lend-Lease and the generosity and the complications. Sean, I'll ask bluntly. Stalin has really good information about Tokyo from Richard Soga, his spy. He believed some of it. He believed all of it or none of it. Who knows? He had so many different spies. Did Stalin at, at some point know that Japan was going to attack, and did he choose not to convey that to Washington despite Lend-Lease? Well, I think he certainly knew that Japan was going to attack or was close to attacking. He may not have known all the precise operational details and the, the specifics about Pearl Harbor as such. Um, but Sorge, um, his reports from Tokyo, you alluded to, along with signals intelligence, the Soviets knew that the Japanese had been transferring armor, troops, warplanes, etc., from um, Manchuria and the, and, and the Soviet frontier down to the south, preparatory also to their moves in Southeast Asia. It wasn't just Pearl Harbor, of course, it was attacked in December was all these other U.S. and, and British and Dutch positions in the southeastern Pacific. Um, so Stalin absolutely had excellent intelligence in all this. And in fact, it's quite interesting. There are a couple of meetings um, involving both Hopkins and also Avril Harriman in Moscow earlier in 1941, one in July and one in September, um, where the subject comes up of Japan. Um, and in Hopkins' case, he just, um, although Stalin wants to make sure that the Americans will keep the Japanese busy in Asia, it doesn't occur to Hopkins to ask what Stalin will do if Japan attacks the United States. Harriman at least raised the subject in September, and Stalin actually gave him this kind of grin and said that he thought the Soviets might stay neutral because, of course, they had a neutrality pact with Japan. Um, and it's in, it was entirely uh, to Stalin's uh, liking and design, of course, that Japan attacked the United States and Britain instead of the Soviet Union. That was the entire point of the neutrality pact. Um, and he definitely did whatever whatever intelligence he had and believed, and he did have pretty good intelligence on, on Japan, uh, some from high-up sources very close to Japan's government. He did not share that. All right, let's go, let's go to Lend-Lease then. The book is Stalin's War. Sean McMeekin is the author. I'm John Batchelor. You're listening to CBS Eye on the World with John Batchelor. 